Our scripture reading this evening is Romans chapter 3, Romans 3 verses 9 through 20. That can be found on page 1196 in your pew Bible, and we will also be reading Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. This can be found on page 202 in your Forms and Prayers book. As you're turning there, just a few words, especially to the children of our congregation. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we do that in the 52 Lord's Days of the year. And in Lord's Day 2, we begin the section, what's called man's misery, or misery, as you see that in part 1 in the page on 202. We enter into that section. The Heidelberg Catechism is divided in three sections. We know it in general terminology as sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. That's the general outline of the Catechism. Lord's Day 2 through 4 describe man's misery. Lord's Days 5 through 31 describe salvation, how we are saved from this misery. And Lord's Days 32 to 52 explain how we are to live in light of that, how we are to obey our service in gratitude to the Lord. And so last Sunday evening, we began with Lord's Day 1. That's the introduction to the Catechism. It doesn't really fit in that framework. It's a summary of the Catechism and presenting the Gospel itself. And then we dive right now into what is man's misery or sin. Before we read from Romans 3 and the Heidelberg Catechism, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word and as we seek explanation and understanding, we pray that you would give it to us, that we would understand what is a topic we wouldn't normally like to know. and That is our misery outside of Christ. But we pray that we would understand it, that our love for Christ and for you would grow that much greater to see where we began to where we are now and to see the gospel in light of our sin. We pray that you would give us that understanding for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We will continue the reading later in the service. We'll read verses 21 through 26. We'll pause there now, and I want to reread verse 20 as it is very closely connected. Verses 19 and 20 I'm going to reread as it's very closely connected to our topic. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now we turn to Lord's Day 2 and an explanation of what the, the Bible teaches of man's misery. Question answer 3. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I want to reread that last question and answer. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Knowing misery, not a topic we would likely choose or desire to take up, knowing misery. And yet, that's what these Lord's Days, Lord's Days 2 through 4, seek to explain that we would have no doubts and be under no illusions of how miserable we are conceived and understood outside of Christ. As we are left to ourselves, as we are left like all men are to their guilt, left to that place, it is a realm of misery. And yet, why is that so important to know? It's certainly not a popular topic. It's not the way you would ordinarily think to bring people into the church. Let's talk about how miserable we are. It's not a topic the world likes to talk about. It's not a topic that many Christian churches or those who claim to be Christians want to speak about. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about their guilt. They don't want to know how miserable they are. They are seeking rather a comfort a, a lifting up. But how can you be lifted up? How can you be placed in, a, in, in an avenue of comfort without knowing actually what you truly need? Without knowing the diagnosis, without knowing the illness or the problem, you can't, you can't treat it. So we have to know what it is, and any doctor would tell you they have to know what's causing the problem so that they can prescribe the medication. And so the Heidelberg Catechism and is in, in, in its explanation of God's Word, of Passages like Romans 3 is saying, this is what's wrong with the patient. Here's the diagnosis. Why it's so dangerous when preaching doesn't contain all the elements of the catechism, all the elements of sin, salvation, service, because if you don't have those three elements, you are neglecting the gospel, you are neglecting God himself. If you preach on only sin, and you only explain misery, you're never getting to the gospel, you're never getting the point the whole point of explaining misery is to lead to the gospel. But if you skip that step and focus only on sin, well, you've done nothing. You haven't presented a good news. If you only focus on salvation, and what I mean by that is only focus on here's what you need to know, here's just believe, 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 and that's it, and you don't actually explain what the problem is, then you don't know what you're believing in. You don't know why you're believing. You don't know what's wrong. You don't know what you're being saved from. 
And if you don't have that third element of service or, or gratitude in our obedience to the Lord, well, if you don't have that, well then what? Again, is the point. The whole point is that we would grow in our faith, we would come to the Lord and then serve Him so that His name would be glorified even through our obedience. And yet, if you were only to preach obedience, you lose the gospel. You see how they all fit. Knowing our misery is the first step in truly knowing and appreciating our Savior. That's the point. That's the point of the, this section of misery on the, in the Heidelberg Catechism, the point of Lord's Day 2. Knowing our misery is the first step in truly knowing and appreciating our Savior. Tonight, our first point is man's misery and the law's inability. Man's misery and the law's inability. These are really two points. The first point would be man's misery, and the second point, the law's inability. But it's impossible to separate them. It's impossible to talk about the one without the other. So we're going to consider them as one point. You see, to understand why the law is unable to help is to understand why and how we are miserable Our misery makes the law worthless to save. You can't have the one without the other. Man's misery is what makes the law unable to save us. And so to say that the law is is its inability is not to say that the law is itself wrong or deficient. It's that because of our fallen estate, this legitimate avenue to to the Lord, righteous law-keeping and obedient life, is removed from us. We're, we're drowning. We're drowning on the ladder that would, is the law, a ladder that would lead to sal- salvation and safety, is inaccessible to us. We can't reach the rungs of the ladder. It's out of our reach. We can't perform it. We can't do it. And so in that sense, the law is inadequate. It's unable to save. This we need to know. To the patient who has this dire this designation, this diagnosis of death, that this is how miserable you are. You need to know that this is a wrong avenue. This treatment won't work. The law won't work to save. True and perfect law-keeping is a legitimate path, but one that's denied to us. And that's where we see our reading from Romans really come in. What comes through the law? We reread it. What comes through the law? Well, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Rather than seeing the law in this illustration and analogy of us in a doctor's office, rather than seeing the law as the medication to save, it's better to see it as a microscope to reveal the problem. Because that's what the law does. For us, it won't save. It reveals the depth of our misery, the depth of our despair. Now, most of us have never truly experienced the despair of our depravity. And I say to that, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that for many of us, we haven't experienced even that great level of understanding our misery as you grow up and hear of the love of God, as you always have that knowledge of the covenant before you. And that's the blessing of growing up in a covenant home that you're spared the more experiential knowledge of your misery. Now, outside of Christ, we're as miserable as anyone else. I'm not referring to that. What I'm referring to is simply that, that sensing, feeling, knowing how, how wicked we are. We, we know how wicked we are in a, in a lesser way. We're very sinful. We see that all the time. 
But having the gospel always presented before us as we grow up in covenant homes is a tremendous blessing. And if you didn't have that, you would likely be the first to say that is very true, that there is so much despair in not knowing that. Of course, there are many here who do feel despair, who grow up in covenant homes and feel the the weight of their misery, and they are always brought to the gospel. But what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is I want us to think of our situation without the knowledge of Christ, without the knowledge of the gospel, just for a moment, just so we can see how miserable our estate is. So we can see how there is no hope in ourselves, that there's no ability to keep the law, that we have in us no capacity to do what is right, because in the law we see only what condemns. You see, if it isn't Christ, if it isn't He who is the path to salvation, what are you left with? You're left with the law. And there are so many who think that suits them just fine. That they'll live their life. That they'll do good. That they'll do their best. And that they'll let the the chips fall where they may. They'll see what happens, and I'll do my best. See, they they place it on themselves and their law-keeping, not understanding their misery You see, misery, and to be in a state of misery, isn't simply a state of despair, a state of of agony. That's part of it. But our state of misery is beyond that. It's rejection of God, it's rebellion from Him. That's the misery of man. Not just that we live in a sin-cursed world and face all these problems. It's certainly a result of our misery. It's part of it. That isn't the depth. The depth of man's misery is that he's been alienated from God, sent out of the garden, a flaming sword put in place. The presence of the Lord is lost to man. How do you get it back? That's the misery, and to know that misery. It's not just man, sinful, unbelieving man, that makes this error, though. It is the quote-unquote or so-called Christian religions that do this. Various forms of theology that will put it on you, put it on your works in some way. Perhaps we're not as miserable as what the Bible says. Perhaps there's an element or a sliver of our law-keeping by which we can attain our salvation, or at least by which we aid in attaining our salvation. fails to understand how miserable we are. This is an error that was felt keenly during the time of the Reformation and before The inability of the law and its weight is felt here. It's felt in the Catholic Church and what brought on the Reformation in the Catholic Church's incorrect theology where they had enough grace in their theology to to make it about you. There is grace in Roman Catholicism, but it's not a grace alone, as the Reformation stressed. It's a grace, it's the Lord and, it's the grace of God and what you will do. Well, you see the fruit of what that incorrect theology produced. And this is not just picking on Catholics. This is We're talking about this to define all the, the beliefs, any type of theology that would say that you have to stay in the covenant by your law-keeping. That it's on you in some way or another. Or that your act of faith is a work by which you've attained salvation, that merits salvation. No, that's all incorrect. See, this is the problem that caused the Reformation itself According to Thomas Aquinas, that 
one of the most well-known Catholic theologians. Grace does not do away with nature, but completes it. And there was a famous phrase at this, at this time. It says, do what lies within you. Do what lies within you. It means that salvation is a process that takes place within us as we perfect ourselves. Put another way, we become righteous before God as we do righteous acts, as we do good works. Just think, what fruit is that going to produce? What fruit does that produce to a, a congregation, to God's people who are in agony of their guilt? who are crying for a way of salvation, a way out of this miserable estate, those who even knew how miserable they are, will outwork the problem. You see, that was the most common answer to this anxious and insecure age. The answer that so many untrained priests gave was try harder. Do more penance, confess more, partake of more sacraments, and do and do and do. It's crippling doesn't understand our diagnosis and our problem, that we can't outwork this problem. And nor is it enough to just get a little infusion of grace from God. We just need a little bit of it. And that'll shore us up enough to just do enough. It won't. One of the most popular Roman Catholic catechisms used during the early years of the Reformation expressed this widespread lack of assurance and certainty of salvation. This is the quote. There are three things I know to be true that frequently make my heart heavy. The first troubles my spirit because I will have to die. The second troubles my heart more because I do not know when. The third troubles me above all. I do not know where I will go. That summarizes this broken and anxious age of those who were even placed just a bare amount to try to claw themselves out of their misery. And this is the context in which Luther wrestled and despaired over God and salvation. God to him was not a loving God. It was a being that he really learned to almost hate because he couldn't do it. And it's hard to try to think of anyone who tried harder than Luther to do this. I want to read an excerpt from what Luther did to try to attain this. You see, he joined an Augustinian order that prized this rigorous pursuit of obedience they were in many ways trying to store up a currency, a merit for themselves and for others by their law-keeping, and they gave a grand effort. This is the excerpt from this book. Luther threw himself wholeheartedly into efforts to achieve salvation. Between the six worship services of each day, which began at 2 a.m., Luther sandwiched intense prayer, meditation, and spiritual exercises. But this was just the normal routine which Luther, in his zeal to mortify his flesh and make himself acceptable to God, soon surpassed. Luther wrote, I tortured myself with prayers, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. And the author says it has been suggested that his long periods of fasting and self-flagellation and sleepless nights in a stone cell without a blanket all contributed to the continual illness that plagued him for the rest of his life. Later in life, Luther remarked, I almost fasted myself to death. 
For again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. On the surface, saving yourself sounds great. On the surface, many think that obedience to the law and salvation through that obedience is attainable. And yet you see here the soul of a man ripped apart in everything that he was doing. He drove his confessors mad with all the sins he had to bring before them. And you know what they said? Those sins don't matter. Let it go. And you know what? They were completely wrong. As much as Luther could confess, it was all sin. What he said that he did wrong, he did wrong. There was no way out. There's no way out through that. They didn't understand the state of misery, and it was in Luther's looking into the Scriptures. It was as he even taught, he began to teach through the Psalms, through Romans and Hebrews and Galatians, clear books that bring to the forefront justification and and what is true justification, and he saw the truth. And the truth of his misery became a truth of comfort. It's comforting to a soul like that, so broken to come and to tell them, you can't. You can't save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself through these works. Your condition, your diagnosis is one of spiritual death. You're not going to work yourself out of that. But, and that's the transition, but, There is a way, and that way lies in justification in Christ alone, by faith alone, in grace alone. That is not yours to be able to work, but yours to believe, and that is a gift of belief that the Lord himself gives to us. You see, on the surface, those who think the law is attainable have it wrong. You might read in the Catechism the summary of the law, and the summary of the law is to love, and everyone agrees. They think that that's great. It's an ideal to live by. Yes, it's right. We can all accept that. That's what most people would say. Yes, it summarizes morality. And yet what they fail to understand is what is meant by love is explained in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments express what true loving is. And he who thinks he can live by that and fulfill this law has it all wrong, and he can't. Everyone says, love God. Everyone says, love neighbor. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. But where do you turn for comfort when you've despised and ignored our neighbor for the tenth time in one day? And that's a low estimate. Where do you turn? Man's law-keeping is pitiful. You read the, the catechism's explanation of what the law requires. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. can't fulfill this commandment. Knowing God's law only produces a knowledge of our misery, but boy, that is vital. So vital to know and understand the misery. Then we are brought to the gospel in an understanding The canons of Dort describe the inadequacy of the law in Head of Doctrine 3 and 4, Article 5. It says this, In this respect, 
What is true of the light of nature is true also of the Ten Commandments given by God through Moses, specifically to the Jews. For man cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue, because although it does expose the magnitude of his sin and increasingly convict him of his guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable him to escape from his misery, and indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under the curse. This is man's misery. This is the law's inadequacy, the law's inability. And we see even more in our second point this evening, the law's requirement. The law's requirement. There were 613 commandments in the Old Testament, all summarized under that command, to love. What's required in God's word is that command to love, yet it's not the free-thinking love we have today. It's a defined love, defined by God's law, defined by his own character, defined by what he has revealed. And that's the hard pill to swallow for everyone in this day and age who wants love to be what they like, who want love to be what they define it. It's not, though, it's what God's law demands. As one pastor said, the law doesn't inspire me to be better doesn't inspire me to be a better me or to find the God within me. The law beats me down and shows me how miserable I am. And all the fussing over the Ten Commandments in courthouses and school buildings in this country, have we forgotten that the law is more than a great set of principles? Yes, the law has a lot of great principles, and all of them are intended to show us how great we are not. Through the law as we think of salvation, comes only a knowledge of sin. People generally like to look at themselves quite favorably, and we fall in that same category. We have Think of it this way. We've never had a day in our life when we've confessed the sins that we've committed. And I think we all know that. I don't think anyone here would say, no, I, I think I've got it all covered. I confessed all the sins that I had in that day. But just, let, just digest that. In, in one day, you haven't even come close to recognize how many ways you've broken the law. That's a miserable state. It's a miserable place to be in, and yet there is a better answer. The requirement of the law is perfect personal obedience. That's what law-keeping is, perfect personal obedience We fail to see that so often. Charles Spurgeon said, So when we meet with persons who say our works are pure and clean and excellent, we bring the great microscope of the law of the Lord and we bid them look through that. When they do look through it and discover that even one sinful thought destroys their hope for salvation by self-righteousness, and when they see a whole host of sins in one of their prayers or acts or thoughts, then they are angry with the preacher and want to break the microscope. On the surface, a requirement of law, the requirement of the law of love keeping seems pretty good. And yet it's debilitating. It's debilitating because it determines and it demands that our obedience to the law reflects the very character of God, as God is the God of love. Which means when we're trying to, to grade our law keeping and how good we are, what we have to look at as the standard is God Himself and the way He loves. Who can compare to that? The other way it's hard is that love is a matter of the heart. Love is not all about external obedience. When you don't do it in sincerity, when you don't do it out of your heart and out of a true desire, it's worthless. 
We might think, well, if it was just that external obedience, if it was just do this, and it didn't matter about our attitudes, maybe we could do that. We, we wouldn't. We couldn't. We might convince ourselves that, yeah, we could do that, but it's not that. The requirement of the law is love, a sincerity. Our internal thoughts. We all know what it's like to obey in frustration and anger and selfishness. Boys and girls, you've probably experienced this when your parents tell you to do something, tell you to go clean your room, and you don't want to clean your room, and you go do it, but you have a horrible attitude. Maybe you clean your room really well, and it's spotless, and everything's in its place, and you obeyed the word of your parents, but if you did it with a bad attitude, you didn't truly do anything good, nor did you obey them the way you should. That's true of us before God. Love is a matter of our heart. And love also must be directed both towards God and man. It's love of God, it's love of neighbor. Sometimes, we are wrong about this, but sometimes people like to convince themselves that they, they're loving God really well, or they're loving neighbor really well. They've got that one really covered. They're really good at that. And then all you have to do is look at the mirror, not to say they are actually doing it well. You convince yourselves, yes, I I love the Lord so much. I'm obedient to the Lord. And then you ask, well, how do you love man? And you see a failure. Vice versa, there are so many, there are so many who profess no faith. And yet they seem to love their fellow man. They seem to treat them well. They seem to love their family. Again, the truth is it's imperfect. But they might have themselves convinced of that. And yet you ask, well, how's your love God. And it's a failure. You see, to love the Lord is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love your Lord. And it starts first with love of God. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the motive, the standard, the purpose of law-keeping. This is the way the law leads us into a knowledge of sin. That's our misery. That's what we've covered. We've seen it in any avenue of, of using the law to salvation. We've seen it as we looked at Luther in false forms of Christianity that put forward some kind of grace from God and yet don't fully get at that it's by grace through faith alone, through Christ alone. No law-keeping. That's the misery, and yet, as of course we know, the Heidelberg Catechism is, is leading somewhere. And we're just going to jump ahead. We're going to jump ahead to where it's leading where that knowledge of misery leads to that great truth that made Luther change from a man broken in spirit to a man who was filled with joy, to a man that changed the world, not in his own power, was the way the Lord worked through him and others like him, but it's the gospel truth. Now we will finish our reading of Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, in the last few verses, there was a problem. There was a problem. We see in verse 25 that whom God put forward as a propitiation by his bud to receive, be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You know, the problem, we get this wrong, the problem of life itself is not why doesn't the Lord save everyone. The problem is why the Lord saves anyone. And the problem here is that the Lord had passed over sins. The just judge hadn't judged it. He had exercised patience. And yet the law had been violated by us who are of this miserable estate. And he showed his righteousness by fulfilling the demands of the law in his son, who was a propitiation, or in a propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God, a satisfaction being made to the just wrath of God, the justice that should have fallen. And so God showed his own righteousness, his own justice, his own glory in fulfilling what was right, and yet doing it on behalf of his people that's the joyful answer. You see, to know in the hospital room a diagnosis of death, that's hard. And yet, to have the doctor say, but there is an answer. And what happens then is from a miserable condition of death and inability to save yourself comes, in Christ you're free. In Christ you're washed clean. In Christ, your law-keeping is one of gratitude. Isn't it interesting that where the Catechism deals with an explanation of God's law is not in this section, nor is it in the next section with salvation, sin, salvation. It doesn't deal with it there. Where does it deal with the law? It deals with it in the section of service or gratitude. You see, now, to one washed in Christ's blood who has experience the propitiation of Christ on their behalf, now the law does not show us our misery in that sense. It shows us the way to please the Lord who saved us. How great, how great to have had this law which condemned us justly to now simply be, do this and please the Lord who saved you. The gospel is amazing. It's amazing. It transforms our lives. We all sit here and we know this. Most of us, we know this. But how beautiful. Beautiful to be reminded of it yet again. To think of it every day. That though we were in a miserable estate, we are now in glory. We've exchanged that miserable condition for the condition of the Son of God himself. He adopted our flesh so that we could adopt his own standing in heaven, giving us his own righteous law-keeping, taking us to his own side, fulfilling the law for us. Now we all feel the mercy of Christ's hands. I began the service by saying, you know, so many of us don't truly understand our miserable estate. 
Again, I say to that, praise the Lord. And yet, even if you have been one who didn't grow up in a covenant home, who didn't at one time even know the gospel and came to it later in life, this estate is yours as well. It's all of ours. We all feel the mercy of Christ's hands. And when we commit our very sinful actions, when we feel our great guilt, and we do, when we come closer seeing what our miserable estate was like, we are always brought back to the knowledge of the gospel that that doesn't ultimately condemn us. That does not ultimately define who we are. As Paul will say in Scripture, we have been raised in Christ. That's how we're defined. Not as lawbreakers, lawkeepers. Lawkeepers who have before the Lord, through Christ, perfect personal obedience that Christ has given for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this gospel message is too much for us. It's beyond us. To know our misery, so much of the beauty of the gospel begins there in this beautiful story of redemption. To know what we were, to know how we fell, and to know that there is an answer, and that answer does not lie with us, but lies in you. We are so thankful to have walked into your room, your operating room, your medical office, to be examined by you and to be given the truth of life. And we have been changed from a diagnosis of death to one of life in your Son. We praise you for this great truth and ask that we would serve you in gratitude and in true righteousness, seek daily to keep your law and to keep it better than the day before. We pray.